Hallelujah. Fathers, we've confessed in this song and it's clear from your word, all boasting is excluded. Save that of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and his miraculous work on our behalf. Lord, we have nothing to show or to offer for the salvation that we have received. There's nothing we could accomplish. There's nothing that we could achieve that would suffice to pay the debt or anywhere close or even touch, Lord, the wages of sin that were due those who transgressed your righteousness, your holiness, your law, and the beauty and glory of the unapproachable God who dwells in light eternally and does not allow, Lord, any shade or shadow of darkness or turning or anything unclean, any hint of sin in His presence. How can we, wicked, decrepit, lost, depraved and hopeless, dead sinners, approach the realm of the Holy One unless and until a miracle of life transformation, of heart regeneration, of total born-again, state of being has taken place in the lives and the hearts of those who trust in Jesus to save them. And we are those who count ourselves by grace alone worthy of your presence because Jesus, our Savior alone, has died in our place. He is the cost of redemption and reconciliation between a sinner and a holy God. He is the perfect offering of the covenant Son, the one born in the fullness of time to satisfy the payment that our sin deserved. And He is the one that we lift up upon these praises. And He is the one we seek to understand more fully and proclaim as a result of the proclamation, the reading, and the exposition of Your Holy Word. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would use these means to equip and ground His church, that we might join a long line in a massive multitude, an encompassing crowd of witnesses through the ages that will testify from now to forever that Jesus Christ is Lord, and in Him alone is salvation and forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Jesus, that you have risen, and in so doing, that you have triumphed over the last enemy, and truly you have crushed the serpent's head. And though your heel remained bruised for three days in the grave, you were born, Lord, anew as it were. You were resurrected from the grave. You were ascended furthermore and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In light of these truths, may we respond accordingly with fear, with joy, with obedience, and with consistency, proclaiming all the while that by grace through faith alone is hope for those who are caught in their transgressions and sins. Thank you for this time we have together. Direct our hearts, Lord, to appreciate and our minds to understand your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, our Abraham, an extended series, which jumped off a few weeks ago from Genesis chapter 22, provides for us an opportunity to draw connections between the life, the testimony, the witness of Abraham, and indeed the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. The title of this morning's message is Abraham and Resurrection. What is the connection between Abraham, our forefather in the faith, as he's revealed in Genesis 22, some of his story anyway, and the resurrection of Jesus, the son of Abraham, as Matthew calls him in Matthew chapter 1. This message will seek to answer that question in part from Hebrews 11, 8 through 20. The aim of this morning's sermon is to feature the testimony of Abraham witnessing to resurrection glory. 
We're going to feature, Lord willing, and learn what the author of Hebrews has to say about the testimony of Abraham witnessing to the truths of resurrection. That is, resurrection glory proclaimed through the experience of Abraham. Would you stand out of reverence for God's word again this morning? As we behold this inscripturated text, we read from Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 20, the holy word of God. Listen as it is proclaimed in your ears this day. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Thus concludes the reading of God's word today. You may be seated. This is one of those, like last week's sermon, a connecting the dots, making the connections through the course of Scripture to some bigger picture themes, or a wide-angle lens sermon. I used that illustration last week, where sometimes we have a more narrow focus. We've recently been studying Genesis 22, what that text in itself intrinsically has to reveal about God's plan for salvation. But now, in the last two sermons, this one and the one last week, we're seeking to widen that lens and get a panoramic view of the connections of Abraham's experience to Jesus Christ and his arrival and what we can learn about resurrection prophesied and fulfilled along the way. So let me, by way of introduction, give a little background and let's hang on for the ride. There were many living witnesses to the resurrection power of Jesus assembled during the course of Messiah's earthly ministry. Living witnesses to the power of Jesus to raise the dead. So here's several examples. We recount the, quote, widow of Nain. So there's a town called Nain. There was a widow there and a funeral that Jesus attended or came upon. All who attended the funeral of this widow's only son, the record in Luke 7, 11 through 17, inadvertently, whether they realized it or not, became witnesses to the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he literally raised that boy from the dead. Then there was Jairus' daughter, 
who was raised again to the amazement of the onlookers, a similar circumstance in Luke 8, 49 through 56. If you have a copy of notes, these are all there for you to reference later. What we're doing is we're just connecting the dots of resurrection through the course of Jesus' ministry in a brief overview here. Who can forget, I'm sure you're familiar with this one, who can forget the account of Lazarus himself and the life-changing events surrounding this beloved man who is raised again by Jesus after four days dwelling on the inside of the tomb. John 11, 1 through 44. On the fourth day, Jesus calls out to Lazarus, Come forth! And a man, once dead for four days, bursts forth from the tomb in grave clothes, is unwrapped by the onlookers, and now everyone who witnessed that event became a living testimony, if you will, to the power of Jesus to raise the dead. And here's one that's more obscure but shouldn't be. Perhaps the, more incre- the most incredible witnesses of all were the saints of old who had long since fallen asleep, awakening at the very moment of Jesus' death, coming out of their tombs and appearing to many in the, quote, holy city. And that record is just two verses, amazing verses, however, in Matthew 27 52 through 53, clearly illustrating a connection between the death of Jesus and the power of resurrection. How does that make sense? One man dies, and tons of saints come out of the tombs and start walking around and showing themselves to people. We can at least say this much. They, in fact, were witnesses to the power of Jesus to raise the dead. In our last sermon, we noted how Jesus summoned witnesses to testify against the unbelieving hearers of his day, even during his preaching ministry. These included Isaiah, who was referenced in John 12, 37 through 41. Jesus said of him, he saw my glory long before I arrived on this earth. And that, of course, is Isaiah's temple vision, chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. We, Isaiah himself sees the glory of Jesus, the pre-incarnate glory, the second person of the Trinity, the enthroned presence of Jesus, mighty God, Yahweh himself, worshipped by the seraphim who cry, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah testifies against those who refuse to recognize Jesus in the flesh, having seen him, had that life-transforming experience in mere vision. More than this, in Matthew 12, 40-42, Jonah, the men of Nineveh, and the queen of south, Join the witnesses summoned by Jesus to testify against the hard-hearted hearers, saying to everyone, this was his point, Listen, a greater one than Jonah and a greater one than Solomon is here, namely God in flesh, Jesus himself, announcing himself through his ministry to the people. So if you do not repent and believe, these who had far, much, far less light will t- end up testifying against you on that final day. All these witnesses that we've listed so far, Join the voice of Abraham, who rejoiced to see Jesus' day as well. We covered this last week. Jesus cites Abraham as a witness in John 8, 58. Abraham likewise witnessed aspects of Jesus' coming hundreds of years before the incarnation. He saw prophetically and through his experience events that would yet transpire long after he had passed away. After Jesus rises from the dead... He continues to call witnesses in revealing the power and plan of the gospel to those who still remain confused or uncertain. And of course, this account comes from Luke 24, 13 through 35. We'll touch on this later in the message. And this is the story of Jesus walking alongside two unsuspecting disciples who were distraught because Jesus had died. But it's been three days. They do not recognize him at first. And before their eyes are open, Jesus gives them an incredible Bible study. 
The very first day, or that very same day, our Lord Jesus rose from the grave. He reveals himself to distraught disciples who do not recognize him at first. Along the way, he explains the gospel events that they had witnessed, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, it says in Luke 24. This raises an interesting question. Why did Jesus cite the scriptures rather than all those living witnesses? He could have said to those two disciples, listen, I'm going to take you on a tour around, uh, the, around Jerusalem. Take a tour around Galilee. I'm going to introduce you to many people who witnessed my resurrection power. Apparently you doubt my authority over the grave. Jesus did not do this. He did not summon the living witnesses, so though they certainly could have and would have testified to the same. Instead, what does he do? He opens the scripture. He goes to the same source that we will appeal to today, to list through the pages of Holy Writ, through the pages of the ancients, the patriarchs, the forefathers in the faith, even all the way back to Abraham, the stories recorded by Moses, all the way through to the prophets. He appeals to these, and thus he makes his case. So he interpreted the scriptures concerning himself in this glorious revelatory moment. Hebrews 11, incidentally, lists Abraham as a chief witness, if you will, among the cloud of witnesses that surround us throughout covenant history. Remember Hebrews 12:1, since we are surrounded by so great a, cr a, cr a cloud, which could be in crowd or multitude, since we are surrounded by, imagine just being in a throng, in a crowd, in a multitude, and there's so many little parts that it's almost like a mass beyond imagination. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us be found faithful. The idea being, let us join them and in our experience and our testimony and our faithfulness to the call. May we echo the testimony, the witness of those who've gone before. So here's a question. What testimony would Abraham have provided Jesus of his resurrection power for that Bible study on the road to Emmaus. Since Jesus is opening up the scriptures to the disciples along the way, what testimony would Abraham have provided of resurrection in this glorious moment? Well, I believe Hebrews 11, 8 through 20 answers that question, and this will form the structure of the rest of our message today under this heading. Four chapters in Abraham's life testifying to resurrection glory. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19 or 20. Uh, it details, it lays out, if you will, four chapters in Abraham's life that testify to resurrection glory. And as we go through these, realize, imagine yourself, if you will, on the road and Jesus himself explaining the glories of his power to raise the dead from the testimony of Abraham. And as you do so in your mind's eye, you can relive something of the experience of that glorious teaching opportunity that we find in Luke 24. So let us turn to Hebrews 11, if you're not there already, and let us open with these first few verses, 8 through 10, marking a chapter in Abraham's life that testifies to the resurrection. We'll call this first chapter, Journey Unto Promise. Hebrews 11:8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder 
is God. How does this chapter in Abraham's life, Journey Unto Promise, testify to resurrection glory? Well, first of all, we note that this experience involves a resurrection of the heart of Abraham himself. If you are a believer in this room, you are a witness to resurrection power in that you were once dead, as the scriptures describe your heart condition, in your transgressions and sins, and God literally raised you spiritually from the dead when he awakened your heart to understand and appreciate the gospel. When the gospel was first realized in your mind, and you heard the word of God's holy law proclaimed and knew that you were guilty of hell itself because you had transgressed God's standard of perfection, and you cried out in the same heart of those early ones who heard the message of the apostles, what must I do to be saved? And the message of grace alone through Jesus' blood, you clung to with all your heart. At that moment, you were spiritually raised from the dead. You, like Abraham, a one-time idolater, became born again, became a new creation in Christ Jesus. And, incidentally, you became a witness to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. This happened to Abraham. Turn with me to Joshua 24. Now, this is an important moment. The context is a covenant renewal ceremony. The people who had been wandering in the wilderness, having escaped the exodus of Egypt some 40 years, and then the next generation, they're finally crossing the Jordan River. And they're laying claim to the promises, even the place that God had prophesied would be belong to the children of Abraham. And so Joshua gathers them together. Verse 1, we read, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And, announced the, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel. So you see everyone's here, including the leaders. We have a solemn occasion. We have a moment of importance. We have a memorial occasion. And they presented themselves before God. A reverential occasion, a holy moment, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Really? Abraham, we are reminded in this text, served other gods at one time. He was an idolater. Abraham was dead in his transgressions and sins, in the place of his old habitation and dwelling, in the pagan city that revolved around the worship of creatures and the created things and things that are not God, but indeed the figments of man's rebellious imagination. Those at one time captivated the attention of the forefathers, but there was something that happened. Verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham. This is the Lord speaking in the first person through his servant. Again, verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. So you see what the Lord is doing? He's summoning witnesses to the resurrecting power, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. He's saying that the reason you're in this land is because of the faith of your forefather Abraham, who was called out of darkness into light and was given promises by God, who changed him from an idol worshiper to a covenant son and gave him a calling to be one in a long line of a messianic family that would one day bring about the true covenant son that would die in the place of sinners. 
So there is a resurrection of the heart. Abraham testifies to this. The one-time idolater in his calling out from a place and to another, the only reason he obeyed and said, yes, Lord, is because he was resurrected spiritually. This is the before and after picture that is signaled by this journey unto promise. It's a chapter in Abraham's life testifying to resurrection glory. Now, further testimony of this journey, we find in the destination. This destination... Is it really, ultimately speaking, the land that his ancestors would one day possess? Well, that's an interesting question. It says, again, in Hebrews 11, our primary text, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Notice verse 10. And this speaks to Abraham's ultimate destination. It says, He was looking forward to the city, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is to be contrasted, by the way, with the city whose foundations, designer and builder is man. And that occurred in Genesis 11, right? With the Tower of Babel. It's a picture of the city of man, if you will. And uh, contrasted to that, we turn over a chapter in the book of, Gen uh, of Genesis, and we find the calling of Abraham. Now, and he's called to a different city. He does not set his sights or place his hopes or invest his salvation, his hopes of salvation, in the city whose designer and builder is man, signaled or symbolized by Babel. No, he places his hope in a city yet to be realized, yet on the horizon, indeed beyond the grave, a destination beyond the grave whose designer and builder is God. If you were to turn to Revelation 21, we don't have time today, you'll find in that chapter the city which Abraham set his sights on ultimately has foundations whose designer and builder is God, and indeed there are 12 of them, each of them a gemstone, pictured in that glorious symbol language of Revelation. And on each one of those 12 foundation gemstones underneath the entire city of God, pictured in Revelation, is the name of one of his apostles, those whom God used to proclaim the truth of who he was and his gospel. And supporting, and these support, these 12 foundations, Twelve gates, each one of them a single pearl, which are set in the wall of New Jerusalem, which is a picture of the bride of Jesus Christ, the ultimate destination, the ultimate place of reconciliation, the ultimate habitation of a holy God with perfectly redeemed sinners washed free of their impurity by the blood of Jesus Christ. The destination, ultimately, that Abraham set his face toward, presumed resurrection. It was a place that he would experience in its fullness beyond the grave. Thus, the journey unto promise testified testify to God's power to raise the dead. And let me tell you, our next message in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, in Genesis chapter 23, will only make this point stronger. Genesis 22, where the offering of the covenant son is the theme, gives way to the final chapter of any length in Abraham's life recorded in scripture, and it's a negotiation for the burial plot in which he will bury his beloved Sarah, right? The covenant mother, if you will. And so Abraham pays a price. And at the time of his death, so far as we know, the only piece of real estate that Abraham owned, he paid for by fair market wage. And it was a place to bury his beloved wife. I believe 11 times in that chapter are references to death and to bury your dead and so forth. And at first you might think, wow, that's sort of an anticlimactic close, isn't it? We've had this glorious revelation, God showing himself to our forefather, and then 
before he dies, we see things winding down. He buys a small piece of ground. He buries his wife. And this, in the end, is all he can really claim as his own of the promised land. Or is it? Indeed, he claims much more. But his claim was one of a spiritual reality that this land would only symbolize and lie beyond the grave. And so the journey of Abraham does not have a sad ending because Sarah did not remain buried and neither did Abraham. But just as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead, all who placed faith and God's power to resurrect in the future coming son would be called forth from the graves with him, and some of them did, even on the day that he died on Calvary bursting forth from the tombs in the holy city and revealing themselves to people around Jerusalem. Imagine if Abraham and Sarah were among them. I'm not sure how far that burial plot was to Jerusalem, but imagine if Sarah had risen from the grave and that little place, I can't remember the name in Horeb or something, and walked to Jerusalem that day and said, hello in Hebrew or Aramaic or Koine Greek or whatever it was. My name is Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Perhaps you've heard of me. Everybody faints, you know, collapses to the floor. The journey unto promise. Four chapters in Abraham's life testifying to resurrection glory. Let's go to the second chapter. This is verses 11 and 12 in Hebrews 11. Sons supernaturally conceived. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Hallelujah. Son supernaturally conceived. Abraham testifies, and in this case Sarah joins him, of course, to resurrection glory. Abraham experienced a resurrection of the heart. Sarah experienced a resurrection of the womb. Sarah is a witness, thus she joins in Hebrews 11, Right here we read her joining the great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before, of whom the same chapter speaks of later, verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Now this refers probably most directly to those women who received their dead back by Elijah and Elijah, I believe, when they prayed over the uh, children who had died and two at least are raised from the dead. There's another resurrection. We remember too in the Old Testament where the bones of the prophet touch the bones of a a random dead guy, and he comes back to life. And these are moments in the Old Testament that are summarized here. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. But did Sarah experience something of a resurrection? She did, in fact. The scriptures say in our text that Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead. Let me ask you a question. What kind of miracle is needed when one is as good as dead? What kind of miracle is needed if you are as good as dead? The answer is the theme of this message. You need a miracle of resurrection. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as, in, as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This, of course, speaks to the physical and spiritual line of Abraham. Kids, how old was Abraham when he finally had Isaac, when Sarah finally had Isaac? How 100 years old is correct. Now, nursing homes were in the news a lot last year, all through to today. A lot of tragic loss, right? COVID-19 burned through many of these areas where those with more feeble immune systems and stuff, naturally speaking, approaching death's door, 
succumbed to this sickness and pandemic, and it was a very sad situation. Now, one thing I didn't hear in the news last year is any pregnancy announcements in those same, say, over 70, over 80 uh, places where you know, people tend to congregate in our culture after they can no longer take care of themselves. Has anyone ever been in an aging home, in a nursing home, or in one of these places and heard from down the hall, it's a boy, it's a girl? It engenders a little laughter. Why? Because of the absurdity of it all. You see, in order for a nursing home to ring with the sound, it's a boy, it would take a miracle of resurrection. And it just doesn't happen. As far as bearing children are concerned, there comes a point biologically in the providence of God where men and women are as good as dead. Thus we see that this circumstance was not God dragging his feet, procrastinating, but it was on purpose. Why? Why did God wait until Abraham was 100 and Sarah almost as old before Isaac was born to them? It was to show by their experience the glory of God's resurrecting power. When a couple as good as dead became the progenitors, the forebears, the forefathers, the grandmother and great-grandmother, the grandfather and the great-great-great-great-grandfather of eventually millions and millions of children. I don't know how many. You don't know how many. And guess what? It's not just a physical line, but if you are in Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham, as it were, you have been an adopted co-heir with him and have been grafted, have been be, uh, grafted into, made part of, adopted into the family of Abraham. So you can count Abraham your father too, thus fulfilling these verses. As many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains, uh, grains of sand by the seashore were born descendants to a man and woman who at one time were as good as dead. Third chapter. Journey unto promise, son supernaturally conceived. Number three, builds on this, Abraham's posterity. This chapter in Abraham's life testified to the resurrection glory of Jesus in that he not only would resurrect the heart, not only did Abraham and Sarah demonstrate he could resurrect the womb, but also he could resurrect a nation. Notice as we continue to read verses 13 and following, after listing you know, how many Abraham's kids were, it says, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Praise the Lord. Now, do you remember the promises to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 2 of Genesis? Chapter 18, verse 18, there was a, prominent, a prominence. There is an influence, a significance, an international testimony, if you will, that was promised to Abraham. God said, I will make of you a great nation. Now remember, again, the context following the Babel dispersion. Not only did God pronounce judgment on the quintessential, the you know, symbolic city of man uh, edifice, that symbol of man's ingenuity and means of preserving themselves in their future, the Tower of Babel. Not only did God judge it in dispersing all the nations, in confusing the languages, 
But God also proclaimed that there would be hope and that there would be one nation that would stand out among the others that would testify to his power to resurrect from the judgment of Babel a new nation, a new people, a royal priesthood, a civilization, if you will, a holy priesthood to show forth the glory of his name. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in this room today, you are a citizen of that new nation. This nation was promised to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations were created as a result of the judgment of Babel. God confusing the languages and separating on purpose man, lest he do himself great spiritual damage, and so on and so forth. And so even today, this great international disparity is witnessed across the globe. I don't know how many nations there are, 150-ish or something, even to today. How many languages and language groups are there? Certainly thousands. All of these testify to that moment of judgment all the way back to post-Babel. Yet there was one nation who would shine forth a testimony of God's power to save. And thus, when God finally gave Abraham and Sarah the promised son, he resurrected a nation, as it were. A nation was in the loins of Abraham, but let, yet lay dormant, unless God would do a miracle and cause him to bear the son of promise. Following this Babel dispersion, the call of Abraham was one of international, of evangelistic, if you will, foreign policy. His family would become a great witness and a blessing to all the nations of the earth, but not if he didn't have a son. So when Isaac was finally born, and Isaac was given children, and Isaac's children were given children, when God called his son, as he identified all the people of Israel out of Egypt, when God gave them his holy law at Sinai, when God constituted them as a nation in the wilderness, when God entered them in, when God ushered them in across the threshold of the Jordan to claim the promised land that was promised to their forefather in ages past, he was resurrecting from a once dead womb, if you will, a nation under the praise of his glory. And to this day, Sunday after Sunday, from this pulpit, we draw from the light of Abraham's legacy to proclaim that Jesus revealed in time from the pages of Scripture, hence our Genesis study. Abraham's posterity, his children, his legacy, the nation that was formed by those who were called out of Egypt, uh, Israel as it were, all of this testified to the fact that God can resurrect a nation from a once dead people. Incidentally, how do we overcome? Oh, excuse me, that's my next point. There's this phrase here, though, at the end of this little portion. These all died in faith. And again, there's a reference to death. In verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So how would this nation carry forward its significance? How would it endure and have a lasting legacy if all of those physically born to Abraham eventually died? Well, it says in verse 16 that God is not ashamed, as it were. Another way to put this is you could say it this way, perhaps. God is not embarrassed that all of the children, physical children of Abraham eventually died. Why? God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And the meaning of this becomes more clear at the end of the chapter. Notice verse 39, this is Hebrews 11. And all these, though commended through faith, 
did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is the message? Well, there is a resurrection in view that will usher in the fullness of the promised national identity of those who are children of Abraham physically and spiritually, especially spiritually, and this constitution of a holy nation, the kingdom of God fully consummated, if, if you will, come to fruition, come into its own, the prophecy finally and fully fulfilled, this will happen post-resurrection in the future. Before us are the elements of a meal, if you will, today. We have the body that is represented by the bread. We have the juice which, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And at this meal is pictured, it's a foretaste of another meal in glory, which is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, there is a covenant feast spread before all citizens of the holy nation that God would one day redeem. And at this moment, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, you will join with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the saints who've gone before, the great cloud of witnesses. Furthermore, as many years as God tarries and as many souls as he adds to his kingdom, you will join with them as well. And yes, the end of that table will reach so far into the distance that there's no way you could see the end without, let's say, the Hubble telescope as I imagine it, because of how many, indeed as many as, so to speak, as the grains of sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens will populate that great meal in glory one day. Now, these all died, we would die if God tarries, before this event happens. Is that embarrassing? Is God ashamed because the reality of these promises did not come to fruition in their fullness this side of glory? Absolutely not. Why? Because of resurrection. Most of our life, in fact, the, greater, the eternal portion of it, if you will, will be lived after this breath, this vapor, this moment that we're alive on this earth. And in the forever after, in the glorious reunion of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the promises of Abraham's legacy, posterity, and international prominence will come into full view. Hence, God is not ashamed to be called a God because He has prepared for them a city. Indeed, the city we referenced earlier with 12 gemstone foundations representing the gospel that was laid forth by his servants, the apostles that witnessed to the New Testament revelation, and indeed our forebears like Abraham are included in that chain of gospel from ages past, proclaiming as much from Genesis 22 and surrounding chapters. Final point this morning. The last chapter we have referenced in Hebrews 11, testifying to resurrection glory in the life of Abraham is the offering of the covenant son. This, of course, is a major theme of our sermon last week. But let us bridge from it and notice the following in Hebrews eleven seventeen, And Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Notice verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The offering of the covenant son testified to it, witnessed to the resurrection of the son. This obedience unto death, uh, Revelation 12, 10 through 11 says of all witnesses that we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony and loving not our lives even unto death. And the word of the testimony 
of Abraham is that he loved not his son, if you will, even unto death. That is to say, Abraham's physical love, natural human love for Isaac, was not greater than his faith that God could raise his son from the dead. How could a father proceed to the hill of sacrifice with his only and beloved son, especially when God had promised that through the line of that boy and only that boy would come hope for all the true people of God, all the future house of Abraham, all of the future promises, the covenant, the Redeemer? How could Abraham proceed obediently for three days toward the place of sacrifice, Mount Moriah? How could he lay, that, lay the wood of the sacrifice on the back of his son and proceed up the hill and say prophetically to him, the Lord will provide the lamb? How could he lift the knife above his son's head just moments before plunging it to his death? How in the world could a loving father do such a thing? It's because Abraham believed in the glorious power of resurrection. He knew that God had sworn by himself and that therefore, even if his son was slain in this incident, God would raise him from the dead. You know the story. We've covered it recently. A voice spoke from heaven and said, I have seen your faith. You've passed the test. Do not kill your son in so many words. Do you remember in Genesis 22? Three times the voice from heaven proclaims of Isaac, referring to him, your son, your only son. And we marked how in the Gospels this corresponds to another witness from heaven. Three times there's a heavenly voice which speaks over Jesus Christ and at his baptism says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at the Mount of Transfiguration says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And in John chapter 12, as Jesus approaches Calvary, the Lord from heaven, God the Father says, I, will, I have glorified my name, speaking as to the ministry of Jesus Christ, and I will glorify it again, anticipating the resurrection of Jesus in just a few days later. Yes, the witness of God the Father from the realms of glory pointed to his son and said, this is the covenant son, and the knife will not be spared of him, but it will plunge deep into his side when the spear causes blood and water to flow. And the Roman implements of cruel execution, those nails will be driven into his hands and feet. And by that blood atonement price, all of the loss will be redeemed. A son, a perfect substitute, the Lamb of God, the one who would bear the wrath and wages of sin, must die in the place of sinners if there is any hope for salvation. If we are to be grafted in to the children, into the family of God, to the family of Abraham, and so the covenant son was born. And God demonstrated his resurrection power in what was figuratively experienced in receiving Isaac as though back from the dead was literally pictured in Jesus Christ, the true covenant son, who was raised after three days in the grave. This offering of the covenant son illustrated obedience unto death, an obedience that Jesus himself would execute in due course. And Abraham himself testified to resurrection faith. God was able, he deemed God able to raise his son even from the dead. And so it happened, figuratively speaking. The cost of redemption was pictured in this moment. 
the offering of the beloved son. God the Father now joins the witnesses, Abraham and the great cloud that surround us all through the pages of Scripture and including the living witnesses at the time of Jesus' ministry, those who heard the gospel and proclaimed it among his apostles, those who went before in all of these various ways, even missionaries in ages past, the church age, they joined that message of God the Father from glory and His witnesses through the ages. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so God the Father killed His Son as it were. Yet in three short days, He was raised from the dead. Are you a witness to this? <clears throat> You know, in Matthew 28, the scriptures say in the Great Commission that you shall be my witnesses. You know, the word for witness is the same as martyr, or the word in Greek for martyr is witness. It means to testify to. And in that context, it's to testify even unto death. And this is the witness that joined, uh, that uh, is pictured all through covenant history. We see it in Hebrews 11 summarized in the following language. What more should we say? Time would fail me, the author says, to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. It says of them, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, yet continues. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. It says in summary, verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Yet, verse 39, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. History has been waiting for you, if you are a witness, to join the testimony of those who've gone before, to be so committed to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and so convinced of His power over the grave that if God has ordained for you to suffer, even unto death, that you will do so. If God has ordained that you would suffer the mockery and the derision and the excommunication and the scoffing mockers of our day who say Christian values are hate speech, that you will rise up when the pressure's on and simply say, I must be faithful to my God and even if you kill me, he will raise me up again. I know this is true because my Savior rose from the dead. Now, if you do not believe this, if you cripple, if, you, uh, if your legs grow weak, if you collapse under the weight of the pressure of the burden of the cross that is required of the believer today, there will be witnesses that stand and testify, but they will testify against you. The men of Nineveh, Jesus says in John or Matthew chapter 12, they will rise up in condemnation against this nation who have seen Jesus, the word made flesh and did not believe. A greater than Jonah is here. Furthermore, the queen of the south will rise up and condemn the nation who has heard of Jesus Christ in their own ears, in their own experience, and did not believe because a greater than Solomon is here. Now, have we been privy to the greatest of witnesses? Yes, we have. Remember what I said. When Jesus witnessed to himself at, in uh, Luke chapter 24, 
after he was raised from the dead, he did not summon the experience of the eyewitnesses. Furthermore, Peter says that though we were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration, we see this in his epistles, we have an even greater testimony still, and he's referring to the written word of God. This is the same word of God that Jesus referred to. And we have referred to it in this sermon this morning. That is to say, if you are not a true believer, if you do not believe that Jesus has the power over the grave, if you have not trusted him and him alone to save you from your sins, there will be witnesses that testify against you and condemn you with as much fervor as the sons of Nineveh, or as the men of Nineveh, and as those of the south, the queen of the south, who heard of the wisdom of Solomon, which is with as much certainty and fervor, if not more, against you. This is the fearful reality. But the hope is, repent and believe. Listen to the voices that echo from Abraham to Jesus Christ and beyond through the apostles that proclaim that our Lord came in the fullness of time, was killed and buried, and after three days rose again, and after another 40 was ascended. And as Hebrews introduces the book, as the author does, he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling and reigning over his kingdom until every one, 1 Corinthians 15, of his enemies are footstool under his feet, and he has ransomed and redeemed all his elect from the far corners of the earth. If you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, if you have not placed your hope in him, bow before him this day and do so. The message that is recorded in scripture and you have heard today, you are responsible for now in your hearing. If you have bowed before Jesus Christ, I pray that this message would greatly encourage you because he indeed is risen from the dead. He is risen, saints. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Let us pray and then we'll transition to communion. Lord, we thank you for the powerful testimony of your glories revealed in Scripture. And I pray that our witness would join those through the ages to testify that Jesus is Lord. I pray that if there are any in the hearing of this message who are yet lost in their transgressions and sins, who are yet serving the idols of their former life like Abraham once was, or are seeking refuge in the city whose designer and builder is man, whatever society holds out as hope, and security in our day. I pray that they would repent, that they would turn and place faith in the one who raises the dead, who raises those who are dead in their sin and will raise us, even our physical bodies, on the final day to join Jesus, who has preceded us as the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead at that great and glorious reunion covenant meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now as we transition to a meal that anticipates these moments, I pray that it would be that much more meaningful for those who partake in your blood and body, so to speak, even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.